The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Joy, Father, that is to sing, to see with our mind's eyes that you will raise us in power, changed when Christ comes. He now reigns, raised, sits enthroned above in power and in glory and will come for us and the same will be for us, a people made new. That is good news. Thank you for it. Thank you for it. Lord, would you stir in us thanksgiving and worship and delight and rest. Make us a happy people in in the fullest, deepest sense of that word. Make us to be a people who rejoice because we see that reality and, and believe it. It looms in front of us, not as as a dreaded day, but as a glorious coming day. Give us eyes to see it. And give us eyes to see it in the midst of now, because that isn't the case yet. We currently exist now amidst all kinds of struggle. All manner of varied trouble is upon us. That's the kind of world we live in now. So we see off in the distance this this approaching glorious reality, this great hope. And we live now amidst a storm. So give us eyes to see that future and, and to hope in it and to rest in its reality and give us strength now to, to fight, to believe your deliverance. Lord, you are a great deliverer of your people. The passage before us today points that out. Use it, please, to speak to us. Speak to us words of hope to draw out from us affection and and worship towards You and to show us something of how we must walk now in this time, in this day, as we wait for the final deliverance that's coming. Lord, we have before us a passage that that in in some ways is not obvious and in some ways is is, um, perhaps confusing in its simplicity. But make it clear for us, please. Make it make the path through it clear. Give clarity to my words. Help me not to stumble over myself, but to make your truth clear so that your people can understand and can be grown. Use your word this morning, please, I ask you, Father. Use your word this morning to build up your people, to build your church, and to gain great honor for Christ, the King, the Deliverer. You must do that, Father, if it's to happen. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we pray, commission your spirit to move upon us, to move in this room, to have his way in the hearts of individual people here. Bless, please. Confront, perhaps. Give concentration where needed. Lord, these works and and a hundred others that you know, would you please do by your power, even now in our midst, begin your work. Build your church and honor your name. And in so doing, deliver us even yet again a little more this morning. Deliver us from fear and anxiety into rest and worship. Deliver us from, from uncertainty into sure and constant hope. Do your work here this morning, I pray, for the glory of Christ and for the good of your church. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 21. The first part of this chapter, as you may recall, a couple weeks ago we looked at it, the first part of this chapter contains a challenging account. It's a difficult passage, a challenging account of, of David 
executing justice in regards to the Gibeonites and some of Saul's descendants. There was a deadly famine afflicting all the land of Israel, and it went on for a few years. And so David sought the face of the Lord to find out what was going on. He sought understanding, and God told him, made him aware that the judgment of God was upon the people because Saul, as representative of the people, had broken covenant. A solemn covenant sworn before the Lord back when Joshua came into the land and Saul disregarded it, set it aside, and invited upon his house and upon all the people that he represented God's wrath. And God, in grace, made that clear and called David to action. It's a hard situation, but David did fix it by appropriate just sacrifice. Showed us a few important things about David and reminded us of some things that we, that we knew about him but perhaps had forgotten because, as we talked about last, last two weeks ago, this final section of Second Samuel is is doing something for us. It's it's reminding us of things that we knew about David but perhaps have forgotten because we've seen chapter after chapter after chapter of David's sin. We saw David in his weakness and and David from David and Bathsheba on, David has been a a weak and sinful man and so perhaps we have seen David and wondered why would we want a king like him? And this final section of Samuel is reminding us because of that. He is, in fact, the king after God's own heart. He is a king, as we saw in the beginning of chapter 21, who exercises justice and who offers right sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. And here in the end of the chapter, he is a king who is a, a warrior who delivers. The kind of king that we want and need who delivers his people from enemies and threat of evil. As we see here at the end of chapter 21. I'm going to read all of the end of this, 15 through 22. Then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand a few of the details before making a couple of overarching observations. And, And as we look at this passage, as I prayed, I recognize that it... It is at first a little bit confusing. What's what's here? What's going on here? So let me encourage you to read it and and to watch for patterns, to see repetitions. And let me encourage you, this is a passage, I think, that should just shout out hope to you. This is a good king. The kind of king we need given the world that we live in. A world full of trouble. This is a deliverer. Let me read 15 through the end of the chapter. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbibenov, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Second Samuel 21. Four wars with the Philistines, without any dates given, as we've seen before. This section lacks a lot about dating. It just pulls things together and presents them all to us, one after the other, and there was war again. Verse 15 and verses 18 and 19 and 20. 
And they're all lined up, one right after the other, to make a certain impression upon us, to, to present to us something. Frequent war. Again and again and again and again. These Philistines just will not quit. They will not win, but they will not quit. It is constant. Verse 15. War again between the Philistines and Israel, and David leads his army out to battle, and they fought, and David grew weary. Recall back in that day, this does not say anything in particular about David's age. We don't, we don't have any time frame here. It doesn't say anything about his age. It just says there's a reality here. Back in that day, warfare was all about sword and spear and muscles, which, I, I take it, grew tired after a day of all of this. David's in the thick of the battle, and he grew tired. He gets worn out in the midst of all of this. It's gruesome work. It's gruesome. He would have been wearing clothing and armor that would have identified him as the king. And he's standing there, the leader of Israel, shoulders slumping, worn, Blood on his arms, most likely. And one of the descendants of the giants saw him there and saw his chance. A chance to kill the king of Israel. He's a giant. He's introduced to us in a way meant to remind you of someone. He's a giant. A descendant either of a particularly abnormally large man who had a whole bunch of people after him, a lineage, or perhaps from a people who were like that. The language could go either way. But he's a giant from a common lineage, and he carries impressive weaponry as he comes forward to kill David, but it doesn't turn out that way. Abishai comes and rescues him and killed the Philistine, and David is delivered from death. And so verse 17 concludes this section with a quote only quote in the in the section, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel, which means not that he's not going to go out with the army and lead them, he's just not going to be in the thick of the hand-to-hand combat. Lest you quench the lamp, lest you, you extinguish the light that illumines us and gives us hope and direction and leadership, inspiration and power. If you're lost, we're lost. So you stay back from the lines a little bit. So what happens then? David doesn't personally himself go out swinging a sword, but his servants after him do, in his light, if you will, under his direction, such that verse 22 can say, all of these giants, they were killed by the hand of David. He gets credit for all of it. He he clearly is the, the power behind it. It's him. But they actually fell by the hand of his servants also. David threw them. First one up is verse 16. And there was another one who was a descendant of the giants. And then again in verse 18. And then in verse 19 we read of another Goliath. Which may actually be a man named Goliath from a different generation. You recall when David killed the first Goliath, it was a long time ago. So years have passed. He was a young boy back then. It could be a Goliath from another generation named after the hero. Or it could be, as First Chronicles said, it's a relative of, of Goliath. He is of Goliath, the Gittite. But either way, when Goliath comes up here, the connection that's been implied is, is impossible to miss here. Giants, the city of Gath, impressive weaponry, the, the word Goliath. And then finally we have... Verse 21, the guy with 24 digits taunted Israel. Same word used repeatedly back in 1 Samuel 17 about how the original Goliath taunted and taunted and taunted and taunted. Goliath shamed Israel and its God all those years ago, and back then there was a Jonathan who watched it all, afraid, until David came forth and fixed the problem. And now, a Jonathan rises up and does it himself in the power of David. 
And so all the giants, one after another after another, were struck down by the hand of David, that is, by the hand of his servants. That's the passage. David and his people delivering the people of God from trouble. So I'm going to make a couple of observations about that. Help us think through what it is that, that the king does and then what it is that the king does in us. It's kind of the, the two directions that I'm working here this morning. Here's the first observation. Deliverance from evil comes by the hand of God's king. Deliverance from evil comes by the hand of God's king. Evil. Evil attack, threat, trouble. That, that's the issue here in the passage. Philistines and wars and giants, they are all presented to us again and again and again and again and again. We're not told much about time or how much time there was between them all. It's presented to us to stress constancy, constant trouble, constant attack. And it is not amoral threat or trouble. It's evil. This is not just some border dispute between two countries. This is Israel, the kingdom on earth in that time and day, God's kingdom, His people on earth, where God's presence dwells, where His His chosen people live, in the land that He gave them under the king that He anointed, being attacked by, by another who wants to kill, steal, and destroy all of that. This is not just two groups of human beings fighting. This is representative of evil attacking God and His kingdom. Again and again and again and again. This is evil. It's a tangible threat. Each of these giants represents a tangible, I'm going to strike you with a sword. A very tangible threat. We're going to kill people and imprison them and oppress them and take things from them. And there also is obviously an emotional, less tangible threat in that. There is the word taunting, accusing. There's fear that would rise up in people from such situations. There's, there's an evil attack that is very tangible and is very immaterial, both. That's the problem here. That is the constant story of the world. Stop for a second. And just think about this. I was sitting in the bleachers right over here the other day, and I heard a, I heard a, overheard a woman who, by general accounts, you would look at her and say, things are going okay for her. And she talked about, in, in a brief moment, not in a negative complaining way, but she just talked about issue A and issue B and issue C and then said, Life is hard. And issue A, B, and C were, as I very briefly heard them, real issues, not catastrophes by any stretch. We could load into A, B, and C real problems. But even this woman in that situation, life is hard. Across the globe, from the very beginning of the book on, from Genesis chapter 2, there's a moment there where life is not hard. And then you turn over to chapter 3 and you find, oh man, everything just came unglued. It all fell apart and it became hard. And you begin to read the litany of, of problems that arises. Brother kills brother. Right there in chapter 3. Didn't, it didn't take very long at all. And from then on, trouble marks all of our existences. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about people. There is an evil at work in this world that makes life hard. And for some of us, we're not really connecting those two dots. And so I want to press it first upon just humanity, a reality here. We live in a world that is constantly under evil attack. 
That's why life is hard. This is a world that was made by God to be a place in which His glory fully dwells. And there is an evil one who hates that very concept and does everything that he can to wreck it. Everything in your life that's hard and the catastrophes all trace back to the fact that there is an evil Attacking, 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 attacking. Pressing in on you. Out there, even in here. Something very wrong with each one of our hearts, in fact. That's the world out there. And that is even more true for the majority of us here who are Christians. I'm not telling you anything you don't know yet. I'm asking you to stop and think about it. Pastor Ralph talked last week as he preached the book of Job about the constancy of spiritual warfare. That's true. And sometimes we use the term spiritual warfare, and sometimes we use the word temptation, and in other situations perhaps affliction or persecution fits better. All those terms are fine. All those terms fit better in certain circumstances. But the actual, I don't mean to drill into the actual detail of what each one of those terms mean because it's not the emphasis of the passage. The emphasis of the passage is that again and again and again and again there is an evil attacking the kingdom. Attacking, attacking, attacking. You are under attack always. Always. And sometimes you're aware of that. Sometimes you feel it and mourn under it and... oh. There is a problem. Really, a problem. And we cannot solve it. Do you, do you believe that? You cannot solve your problem. We can't solve the problem of the world. I can't solve the problem of my own heart. I can't solve the problem in my own family, my own relationships. I can't solve, you can't solve the problem. And it is huge and it is relentless because there is evil constantly attacking. Sometimes very deliberately, very overtly, very alarming ways. And at other times it's very subtle. A constant eroding of the foundation. A constant whittling out of of the core so that you feel hollow and worry and wonder. It's always there. Do you realize that? And that you are without hope in this world if it's up to you to fix it. You can't. You're not nearly smart enough and not nearly strong enough. Not nearly good enough. You are the problem. I am too. We are the problem. Part of it. The passage is emphasizing the constancy of this problem. And I said this was good news because it's not really about the problem. I'm just emphasizing that now to make you realize, oh, what's emphasized is the constancy of the problem, comma, end of the deliverance. Because for just as many, and again there was war, there is a comma, and he struck him down. And again there was war. We dealt with that one too. And again there was war. Yep. And again there was war. Uh-huh. Again and again and again and again there is an evil who attacks, and again and again and again and again there is deliverance. That is good news. The reason I've talked about the other earlier is that you don't care about that unless you feel the weight of, oh my goodness, I have a problem. 
I really do. You really do have a problem. And you really do have a solution. All by the hand of David, verse 22, God strikes down every attacking evil one. That is real. That is equally constant. The passage concludes with that point to make that clear. And it exists in this context to remind us, oh yeah, that's the king that we need. The king who, oh yeah, oh yeah, way back in the beginning, why did the people want a king in the first place? They wanted someone who would lead them out against the nations. Here he is. The nations, the nations press in and attack, and he goes out and delivers again and again and again. This is the king. This is the deliverer given by God to his people in love to secure his kingdom. David's the one that we need. Actually, not quite the one we need. Because he does die. All this is actually pointing us to, to the other king. We know where this goes. By this point, we're seeing that again and again and again, all that David is doing is establishing for us some model of the king, the one who would be the son of David. We have a king that we need, Jesus. So stop here and think about this. Yes, there is trouble. And I would encourage you, in fact, maybe mentally, I don't know if you want to do it on paper or not, but mentally to write down, My trouble that attacks me is. And then to write down after that, and that's from which I am delivered. Stop here and think about this, men and women. This should make you smile and rejoice. I'm looking looking at you. There's not a lot of smiling. I don't actually care if you smile, of course, but... Does your heart say, oh, I face an enemy. I'm, I'm plagued in here with an enemy. And God in love has provided for me a deliverer. Oh, as surely as there is attack, so surely there is deliverance. There is a king. There is a hope. He has said, I have claimed you as my people. There is no weapon that's fashioned against you that's going to work. Speaking corporately, the the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Oh, they will stand for a while, but they will not prevail. So I don't know how the particular trouble manifests itself in in your individual life or in your family's life, but look at it. I I thought through some people, I thought about my own life, I thought through some people, and I thought, boy, you know, there are are people who, who struggle with significant temptation such that things look to possess them, to own them. The promise is you will not be defeated by that. There are people who live in in some significant marital troubles. He will deliver you. Now, in each one of those, and in every other situation that you think of, the promise is not, there will be no war. The promise is, there's going to be a war. You will be attacked. The promise is, He will not leave you nor forsake you, but will carry you through and deliver you. I don't know how. I don't know how. Who can say? The ways that may play out are myriad. But you have a deliverer given. A strong warrior who is wise where you are not. Who is strong where you are not. And who is good where you were not. So you should, at this point, you, Christian, you should stop and say, bless you, God. Thank you for making war successfully on that which makes war on me. 
the material troubles and the immaterial both. You are blessed people. God has provided a deliverer for you. But I want to move one step further into this and point out something else in the text because there's a, there's a little difference here. This passage is obviously meant to cause us to dial back to 1 Samuel 17 and remember David and Goliath. A lot of similarities. But there's a difference here. There's a difference here that answers the question, why? Is God for you to deliver you? How can that be? The difference in the passage is, if you think back, we're not going to look back there, but if you think back to 1 Samuel 17, David is very clear that God is going to deliver him. The one who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. And then he says to, to Goliath himself, God's going to deliver you into my hand this day. God delivers him, but there God delivers an aggressive attacking David. Here, God delivers a failing, frail, weary, doomed David. This passage does not present to us, and David and the giant duked it out, and it was going back and forth, and the, the, the victory hung in the balance until Abishai intervened and tipped the scales. That's not how it goes. David is done. And Abishai intervenes and rescues him. So what we have here is we have a king who is the deliverer. All four are credited to his account. But before he is the deliverer, he is delivered. He himself. From the very same thing that he then delivers us from. Do you follow that? He delivers. By His hand are all these giants struck down. But first, before He does that, He Himself is delivered from the evil attacker. The evil one comes after David first and is removed. And then David removes them from all the other people. That's the difference which should make us think of something. Now this is just an Old Testament passage recounting physical battles. There should be something kind of clicking in your mind as I start to talk about a king who is delivered from evil and then becomes the deliverer of his people from evil. I hope that's starting to click. Who am I talking about? There should be something there. There, there are, there's a model here in this passage that should resonate with us when we look at it through the eyes of the gospel and realize that's how God becomes your deliverer. And why He is not the deliverer of everyone on earth. Christ, this is, this is the heart of the Gospel. Christ falls Beneath and is doomed, as it were. Beneath evil. And is rescued from it, lifted up, victorious. Winning for you, Christian, the favor of God and the promise of your deliverance in Him. That's the heart of the gospel. That Christ first fell under that which attacks us and rose victorious over it and therefore has won for you the favor of God and His deliverance for you. Good news. If you're not a Christian, hope is right here. It's not yours yet. You've got to come to Christ. You've got to trust Christ first. And then you find Christ has won for me the favor of God and the promise of deliverance for me from all the trouble that I face. Trust Christ. But Christian, 
You in Christ promised deliverance. Oh, what a hope you have. What a hope you have. All focused on Christ. All drawing our attention to Him. Credit due to Him. By His hand, all these giants fell. All of our attention drawn to Him that He might be worshipped. That all glory and honor and praise would be directed to Him. That's what God has done in the Gospel. Saved His King to make Him a Savior of you. That's the first observation. Deliverance found in the hand of the King. But it raises a question for me because I want to know a little bit about how does that happen here and now. You've won some deliverance from me, God. Okay, good. But how does deliverance actually come here and now? I, I understand. I'm, I'm dialoguing with the text, if you will. Here. I understand deliverance from wrath. But I'm wondering about deliverance right now amidst this marriage difficulty or right now facing this temptation that seems to grab me and hold me and seems so dominant. What does your deliverance in those situations look like now? And I want to move towards that with a second observation. I want to try to answer that question. So here's the second observation. God's King delivers His people by changing them on the inside. God's King delivers His people by changing them on the inside. By making us different within. Let me try to show you where I get that. What I, what I mean by this by changing us within, try to make clear the, the type of deliverance that I'm talking about and not talking about. If, for, for instance, you wanted to deliver people from the danger of drowning, a few things you could do. If you want to deliver people from the danger of drowning, you can keep them from ever going near the water. That's my personal preference. I don't like to swim. You can pluck them out of the water. You could somehow be ever hovering over them with a giant claw to pluck them out in the moment of need. You could give them a flotation device. Or instead, you could change them into superior swimmers. You can keep people from drowning, either by keeping them away from the water or by changing them to be superior swimmers. And I'm talking about this, this latter. Both of those would be deliverances from drowning, end result is that nobody drowns. But I'm talking about the latter one, something that changes the person so that in the water, in the midst of the water, drowning doesn't happen. That's the kind of deliverance that I'm working on here. The kind of saving, delivering that's about changing, a transforming deliverance. That's what I'm getting here. Let me explain how I, I work towards that. A couple of steps. First, the fact that David is the lamp of Israel. Verse 17, David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Obviously a metaphor talking about light shining out to give hope and direction and leadership and inspiration to empower. You, David, are the lamp that shines in our midst here. Then we see that played out in the following wars, culminating with verse 22 statement, they fell by the hand of David. He gets credit for the victory, most likely on the battlefield. But David's men also get credit for the victory. Fighting because of David, inspired by David, fighting under his name. David gets credit. 
But whose hands actually swung the swords? The men. Their names are right there. And they're presented to us with this drumbeat of constancy such that we are to think, and if there had been a fifth, and again there is war, there would have been a fifth guy to step forward and strike that one down. And if there had been a sixth, and again there was war, there would have been a sixth guy to step forward and strike him down. This section actually stands in parallel. If you look at the whole final section of of 2 Samuel, this stands in parallel to the list of David's mighty men. Point mirrored there. There were a whole bunch of mighty men. There would have been a 13th and a 23rd they would have stepped forward and struck down these giants. Four Goliaths come forward and four men strike them down. Which is totally different from what happened in 1 Samuel 17. Do you get that? This is the point. Back in 1 Samuel 17... Even righteous Jonathan stood there, afraid of taunting Goliath. For 40 days, the fullness of time, the full period of testing, he taunts and he taunts, and there isn't found anyone in all of the kingdom of God, in all of Saul's kingdom, not a one who will stand up and fight him until David comes forward. And now, again and again and again and again and on and on and on, man after man after man stands up and strikes down the giant and delivers the people. To the glory of man, no. In the name of the king under the illumining lamp of David, such that he is the one who actually did it through them. David struck down one man, but here his servants do greater work than he did. Does that sound like anything you've heard before? Here are men who are made to be not just not conquered, but who are made to be conquerors. David takes a step back and his people step forward and his people themselves strike down the enemy that threatens the kingdom. Under his light, the lamp shining upon them. So draw that together. Jesus is the king who is the deliverer. Jesus is is the deliverer in your life, in your situation, in the trouble that attacks you. But how does that happen? As His light shines upon you and changes you, making you, to use the language of Romans 8, more than a conqueror through Him who loves you. Making each of us, each Christian, change the language from warrior to minister, making each Christian a minister of God, for God, to God's people. What Christ won for you in the Gospel is not just your safety, not just your removal from water, but the changing of you amidst the water the making of you into a different person, a transforming of you as He puts His Spirit in you and moves you to follow His decrees and makes you a speaker, a Spirit-empowered speaker of the truth of God to yourself and to those around you such that the body builds up the body as the body does each little member of the body's work all to the glory of Christ who gives the power that makes it so. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But under His shining light, with His Spirit filling us and empowering us, we do it. You do it. What does that mean to get, to get very exact? It means that when you face that temptation, that 
that seems so powerful or the marriage that is so troubled or, or, or whatever the evil attack is against you. It means that God will work His deliverance in you by His Spirit in you and by His Spirit in the Christian who's sitting next to you. As the two of you with His light shining in you His illumining light shining in you. Have the Word of Christ richly dwelling in you. Have your minds renewed, your bodies, your your beings transformed. You're changed. Hold on to that. Do not let that be lost on you. I mean, I, I feel like there's a stream of thought coming out here. And the great danger is that at 11.48 or whatever, you're going to stop thinking here and miss this. God has promised to you a great deliverance. Won it for you, in fact. But He does it with an active you. With an active you. Under his power. That's the point I'm working at on here. Verse 22. They all fell by the hand of David and by the hand of the servants. They will fall by your hands. By his hands. By his hands. By your hands. You must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that happens, we are changed by the truth dwelling richly in us. Now, all we see that, that alludes to that, that makes me think of that, is, is the light shining in the passage. This isn't actually explaining all of that. But to think about the King's light shining into my life or into your life in, in our midst Light and illumining and truth and Scripture leaped in my mind. And then I find passages in the New Testament that say, "Uh, yeah, that's how we are transformed, by the renewing of our minds. He delivers you as His Spirit in you brings His truth to bear on you and causes you to see it and to help others see it. So the point here, He changes us inside. That's how He delivers. By His Spirit and His Word at work in us to change you, to change you. What a blessing. What a blessing that is for you. And, if you're thinking just one step further, it should call you to say, God, Give me more of your spirit. Illumine more of your scriptures for me. Use me in the lives of those who sit around me and them in in me because I see that you will deliver me by the hands of your servants. Help. Bring them into my life. Bring me into their lives. A body. body in which Christ dwells, in the midst of whom Christ shines, changing us to deliver us from evil. He answers that prayer request, you know. He taught us to pray it, and he answers it, not just in the end, indeed in the end, but he answers that day by day by day, by changing you. His Spirit at work in you with the Word, richly dwelling in you, renewing your mind. So respond to Him in thanksgiving and in rest and by going to the Scriptures and saying, fill me, change me, help me to understand you and to think thoughts after you because that's how you will deliver me from every evil attack that presses in constantly. You will change me. That's how you deliver me. You can't be changed otherwise.
that you can't be delivered otherwise. So we have a good God who in showing us constant attack also shows us constant deliverance. A deliverance that is worked through changed people. May God be at work in you and in us to make you new so that you, His servant, in His power, can actually be, with a small d, a little deliverer of the people of God. A minister among the people. Let me pray. Lord, I feel... feel some sense of hope and some sense of, I think, realistic disappointment. There is great hope here that you save your people. And there is realistic disappointment that we, we still face many struggles all around and imperfectly Imperfectly walk, imperfectly walk with you. So, Spirit of God, would you have your way among us? Open our eyes. Move us to follow your decrees. Thank you that you have made a people, given us a, a different blessing, the fullness of your Spirit, the whole of the Scriptures. Lord, we are a failing people. We are often weak and blind, irregular in our pursuit of you. Help. To build a church, Lord, that is a community that is oriented towards each other and not just towards ourselves. To build a community here in which your light shines, empowering us and directing us and filling us. Well, what I'm praying for in all that is I'm asking you to deliver, to save, to sanctify, to make a people pleasing to yourself, and to make your name famous here, loved here, and then through us elsewhere. So have your way with us, please, Lord, and do, do this in, in your power, in your way, in your timing. That's what I ask you to do. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.